Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity entitled, Modifying Treatment Strategies to Address Poor Response in Major Depressive Disorder, is jointly provided by Novus Medical Education and Medical Education Resources. This activity is supported by an independent educational grant from Atsuka America Pharmaceutical Incorporated. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements as well as the learning objectives. Hello everyone and welcome to the webcast titled Modifying Treatment Strategies to Address Poor Response in Major Depressive Disorder. Uh, my name is Professor George Papacostas. Uh, I'm uh, a faculty at the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School and a mood disorders researcher at Massachusetts General Hospital. Uh, and joining me today is my colleague, Dr. Larry Culpepper. Larry, if you'd like to introduce yourself. I'm glad to be here, George. Uh, and I am Larry Culpepper. I'm a professor of family medicine at Boston University School of Medicine and have been uh, really looking at how we integrate into primary care all the advances that are coming down uh, from psychiatry that are really making a big difference for our patients these days. Thank you for joining us, Larry. Um, so before we get started, let's quickly review our learning objectives. So by the time we complete this webcast, participants should be able to, number one, define treatment response, remission, and treatment uh, resistance in major depressive disorder. Uh, participants should be able to identify patients with inadequate response to antidepressants who may benefit from modifying their treatment. Uh, we uh, will be able to select an appropriate next step treatment strategy for patients with partial response to an antidepressant, uh, and number four, be able to compare pharmacologic and adverse event profiles of SGAs, or second-generation antipsychotics, approved for adjunctive treatment of major depressive disorder. So for the purpose of today's discussion, we're not going to focus on global prevalence or epidemiology of depression. Uh, we all know cases of depression are on the rise, and the pandemic has really exacerbated this issue. It's described as a pandemic within a pandemic. Uh, we're also not going to discuss screening and diagnosis. Instead, we're going to cut right to the chase and focus on patients you're currently managing who are diagnosed with major depressive disorder. More specifically, we're going to talk about how you've been assessing their treatment response and what you do for patients who aren't getting better despite uh, adequate therapy. So Larry, we're both practicing clinicians. Uh, we, we work in, in somewhat different venues, but we, we devote a significant portion of our time seeing patients uh, with uh, major depressive disorder, whether it's in a psychiatry specialty care clinic or in more on the uh, primary care interface with mental health. Um, so uh, one type of patient we're very familiar with is the patient where you get, you know, you, you adequately assess them and you have the diagnosis down. Uh, and then you treat them and they come back and they say they're a little bit better, but either that improvement doesn't, doesn't sustain, um, or doesn't, uh, doesn't mature over on into remission. Uh, just a few general words in your experience. What are some of the key things in your approach to patients who, who present this way? Well, you know, one is going back through the things we usually do, uh, on initial assessment of a new episode of, of depression. Uh, just to be sure we, you know, we've covered it all. So, uh, do we have the right diagnosis? You know, could the patient possibly be in, uh, their first, uh, uh, bout of, uh, of a manic, uh, 
um, you know, uh, comorbid uh, condition or illness? Uh, are they psychotic? And we just haven't recognized the psychotic nature of this uh, depressive episode. Do they have other comorbidities? Sleep, ADHD, you know, and so forth. Chronic pain. These are all things we know are going to uh, inhibit progress, uh, you know, for the depressed patient. Then I think about, do we have the same goal in mind? You know, do I really know the patient's preference in terms of treatment? And are we, you know, are we taking in that into account? Because that's going to be important, not only to assess their current treatment, but also to think about where do we go from here if, um, you know, if the patient really is plateauing. So there are a lot of things I, I go back over, substance abuse, obviously. I think these are all things we, you know, we generally have covered uh, for the depressed patient. And it's just sort of a uh, making sure. Another issue I wanted to raise, uh, maybe for folks who, who are less familiar with the terminologies that we use, uh, is to go over some of the standard terminologies that, that are used in the literature for defining remission or response or partial response or non-response. Right. Um, and also, for some clinicians, the definition of treatment-resistant depression uh, isn't one that they often come across, and it can be a little bit confusing. So um, so if you'd like to walk us through some of those sure. literature definitions. And, and I, think, I think these are fairly standard. I think probably one of the most critical things to understand about these concepts is that they're all symptom related. So when we talk about response, partial response, remission, we're talking about symptoms, but that's only part of the depressive illness. So certainly, you know, if we use any one of our standard measures and measurement-based care is certainly the only way to approach depression with, uh, you know, with patients. If I've got a patient who has scored here, you know, be it a PHQ uh, 9 of, um, you know, 22 or 18 or, you know, HAMD or, you know, whatever I'm using, wherever I'm starting, that's my baseline. And I would expect, you know, between the pre-treatment and probably the first uh, post-treatment contact within a few days of starting the medication, uh, I'm not expecting much change there. So it, that gives me a sense of stability. But then I'm looking at, do they advance as I would expect? So most of our patients, uncomplicated. We start them, you know, I'll take 20 because it's a nice, easy round number. You know, we start them at 20. If they get a 25% response, so then they're down now to 15. Uh, you know, that's a partial response. Yeah, and... Ideally, we'd see that fairly early on, two or three, you know, within a couple of weeks if the patient, it's a good sign that a patient's going to continue. You know, but a patient that comes down to 15, partial response, you know, getting down to uh, 10 or, or, or 50% decrease in symptoms, it's going to be a, a full response. And then, you know, if we get down, most people will measure uh, remission by at least 80% response. Uh, in other words, Symptoms you might still have some, but you know the you know the the features are, are pretty much gone in terms of symptomatology. Uh, but that's just symptoms. It's not telling us about uh, well-being. It's not telling us about uh, um, you know issues beyond you know symptoms that we need to pay attention to in getting a patient to true recovery. Right, exactly. And I think that there's a, 
uh, you know, there used to be this debate, you know, what is treatment resistant depression based on the framework you just, pro, you know, you just presented. Um, and I think that most people right these days arrive at the definition that if, if someone's received at least two treatments for depression and they've had less than a 25% response, meaning they're non-responders to those, then they fit that definition of, of treatment resistant depression. Another another uh, issue that that I, that I know that from our discussions that we both face in the clinic is that even when you get patients to remission, oftentimes or, or close to remission, oftentimes you have sort of these stubborn residual symptoms that are left over that 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 get in the way. Um, so, in your clinical experience, um, which are the ones that sort of uh, that that stick out or more pronounced, if you wish? Sure. Um, yeah, and. Yeah, it's interesting because what really sticks out for the patients as as they uh, as they do move toward remission, then you know a return of function for them becomes more important and becomes uh, you know becomes much more of the goal. Yeah, and at that point, what I find is the symptoms that really are bothersome to them are the ones that are inhibiting uh, you know further improvement in function, and those typically are things like poor concentration. Uh, uh, insomnia is a biggie, yeah. You know, and uh, insomnia is again where I really need to understand: is this a comorbidity that's chronic, or is this episode related? Uh, you know, those tend to be big. I think, in addition, a lot of times I find irritability, anxiety, things that um, really uh, impair their relating well to others, either at work or in their family, uh, become much more prominent as problematic for the patient, either because they're concerned about them, others are concerned about them, or they're really in inhibiting that functional improvement. But, uh, you know, those are certainly big ones uh, that I'd want to look at uh, with the patient. And for many, for many, for many, in many practices, these are easy to miss, right? Because yeah. you have the patient going from a full depressive episode that may have been there two, five, ten years yeah. uh, to being in remission. And then you know, they feel great. Uh, they feel much better that we're uh, relieved that they're relieved. Yeah. Uh, and, and then uh, it could be easy to say, well, let's, let's stop. Let's stop looking now. Let's stop investigating. But there's a number of studies that, that we can, mm -hmm. that we can look up that tell us that it's not, that the story doesn't always end there. So for example, um, uh, in, in, in star D 71.7% of patients had sleep disturbance after achieving remission or appetite or weight disturbance in a little bit more than a third. Um, in another study, patients in remission with fluoxetine, this is a famous study that uh, came out of Mass General, um, more than 90% had at least one residual symptom despite remission, uh, including what you mentioned is insomnia, hypersomnia, these kind of sleep disturbances mm -hmm. that then affect cognition, that then affect right. functioning uh, and anxiety. Uh, and finally, a, a famous study by Conradi and colleagues published in 2011, looked at patients over time. So mm -hmm. more than uh, two years, almost three years, uh, patients in remission, average of two symptoms present during their remission uh, with cognitive symptoms probably tied to insomnia, right? Lack of energy, sleeping problems dominating the course. Right. So, um, so we get people better, but we still investigate, make sure that these residual symptoms are, are resolved because they can certainly get in the way of, of wellness and functioning. You know, so clearly, the the kind of the the order of how things evolve is that 
you get someone symptomatic and then they do or they don't get better. Uh, but for those that, that remit, you have to focus on residual symptoms. Then you have to focus on restoration of psychosocial functioning because that type takes time as well. Um, but let's now focus a little bit on those patients that have gotten a little bit or, or no better at all. So 25 to 50% improvement or even close mm-hmm. to 0% improvement. Um, let's talk about uh, some, of the, uh, some of the modalities that you use in your clinic to get folks fully better. Sure. Uh, you know, one thing, obviously, is making sure we've maxed out, uh, you know, doses, because that's a big problem in primary care is people don't advance the dose. Uh, beyond that, I think then about, you know, the, the classic, you know, should I switch or should I augment? And I use a pretty simple approach, which is if the patient's getting better and it isn't, you know, has patients noticed improvement, I've noticed improvement, then, and it's not a situation where I am side effect limited or uh, drug-drug interaction limited, then I will think about uh, augmenting. And, uh, yeah, and that, uh, you know, that's certainly one strategy. Uh, if I've got a patient, you know, that just hasn't gotten that much better and, and um, you know, or is having a lot of side effects, I mean, we're likely going to want this patient on treatment for a you know, considerable time, if not indefinitely. And we need a medication uh, that's going to treat the patient well. And so side effects you know, leads me to think, switch, um, cut your losses. You know, it may take a few weeks to get back up, you know, but, but it's just better to do it then than to keep battling the side effect. So that's my typical uh, approach early. And I'll think about, you know, Oh, fairly typical uh, agents for my first triads at uh, uh, at augmenting. I'll think bupropion. I'll think mirtazapine. Yeah, you know, I'll think uh, SNRI if I've got them on SSRI. So, so that's typically where I, you know where I'd start. Cognitive behavioral therapy as well. Yeah. Oh, no question. Yeah, particularly if I if I'm picking up that you know that that there's some real interpersonal issues uh, here that um, you know that are going to need to be dealt with. Um, one of the uh, one of the uh, advantages, though, that I find of augmentation is that uh, you can build on partial response. So, exactly. so you have someone who gets maybe twenty five to fifty percent better. Then, if you switch, there's a risk of um, uh, losing that improvement and not getting it back again. Whereas, if you augment, you can build upon mm-hmm. it. Um, the corollary, though, is sometimes a pitfall that that clinicians make. So, so sometimes I found that clinicians, especially those in training, they take that comment and they turn it on its head and say, "Well, that means that if someone has not had a partial response, I'm going to switch and I'm going to wait for that partial response to um, in in order to mm-hmm. to go forward with an augmentation," which I think is a mistake. And the, the reason for that. Um, we, we've seen very clear in, in STAR-D. So right. I, I've pulled up this slide um, that, that we're all very familiar with, wanting to make the point that if you wait too long for augmentation and you're, if you're sort of, if you have switch, what I call switch tunnel vision, right? Mm-hmm. All you can think of for the patient is switching, then you're not going to be able to see the light at the end of the tunnel after two failed trials. So, so we see from STAR-D here, someone tries an antidepressant the first time, 67 or two-thirds of patients don't achieve remission. Someone tries a switch, one in four patients only achieve remission, three in four do not. So two-thirds, 
three quarters don't achieve remission. You try a switch again, so this kind of switch tunnel vision, right? 80 to 90% of patients don't achieve remission. You switch again, 80 to 90% of patients, again, don't achieve remission. So, and, you know, the other piece of it there, though, that, that makes the, the data you just said even worse is that as we progress along there, you know, I mean, if you think oh, most depressed patients are going to have a, uh, a negative cognitive bias. You know, they're going to be interpreting the world, interpreting what's happening, you know, sort of in the worst possible you know, way. And, and that gets reflected in the star data that we often kind of ignore, the footnote at the bottom that says, you know, by the end of making all those switches, 52% of patients have dropped out of treatment. Right. So, you know, that's if you can keep a patient in through all those switches. So augmenting where you're building on a response is a much more positive message to the patient. You're, you're making steps, and we're not giving up. We're going to get you even further. And, and, and there have been analyses that have shown that augmentation, for example, with aripiprazole or with the atypicals, yeah. is equally effective in people who have had no response as well as people who have had a partial response. So, so I think that it's very important to kind of dismiss this notion, number one, that switch after two fails will get you to remission. Oftentimes, as we see from Stardy, it doesn't. And the second notion is that you need a partial response fragmentation to build in and to work. That's actually not true, that, uh, that um, if you use it in non-responders, you're likely to get to remission as well. And in fact, if you wait for a non-response and it doesn't happen the first or second, second fail of switching, it's certainly not going to, very unlikely that it's going to happen afterwards. So I exactly. think that, that it's uh, one thing I'd like to communicate to clinicians is that, uh, you know, switches are useful, but persisting with a switch strategy after a couple of failures is really futile. One of the biggest lessons of STAR-D. So we need, we need these treatment building blocks to get people better. Um, and for decades, the, our field has been developing relatively straightforward building blocks that can only be used in isolation. All these monotherapies, yeah. you know, the, the Celexas and the clomipramines um, with, with very little data available as to how, how we can get someone better combining them. Um, and, and fortunately, we're beginning as a field to realize that that's, that's not the only way to get people better. And we need these kind of so, these solutions that you combine uh, these sort of so-called augmentation strategies that you can combine and walk someone through to remission by building a, a treatment regimen that works for them. Um, so and given the complexity of the brain, that makes sense. Right. You know, it's Ab not a, 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 you know, hammer and block sort of situation. Absolutely. Um, so, so what are, if you could walk our audience through, what are some of the, these adjunctive building blocks that are FDA approved in the U S sure. Uh, the atypicals are probably, uh, you know, where we go next. And there's a lot of good data uh, out there for us to understand the atypicals. So, you know, certainly FDA approved ones, the uh, olanzapine fluoxetine combination is, uh, is certainly uh, uh, one option. Aripiprazole has often been a, a, you know, a sort of go-to atypical because of, uh, you know, it's, it's seeming decreased side effects, although I'm not sure those hold up in patient experience. Uh, quetiapine, uh, particularly the XR version, is one. And then probably the, the, the one, the latest out that uh, I think is, uh, you know, a significant addition for us is brexpetrazole. Yeah, so those certainly are critical ones that we have that are FDA approved. And I think we've got others that are building, um, you know, data in, in, uh, you know, major depression. I'm thinking there, uh, Ziprazidone, uh, Risperidone, 
uh, cariprazine, uh, lorazidone, all of these are, um, you know, I think options as we identify patients that need, uh, you know, additional treatment options because they really are significantly treatment resistant. And, you're, and, and as, these, uh, as the solutions become more and more complex, uh, adjunctive treatment strategies, meaning uh, are, the algorithms get more informative as well. They get more complex. So to take the CANMAT 2016 guideline, they actually, for, for people uh, who require uh, adjunctive uh, medication strategies, they, uh, they have the atypicals actually as first line. So aripiprazole, yeah. quetiapine, risperidone, having his first line and second line here, Brix Piperzol is reported. All of this is from 2016 and there's a lot of data that's accumulated out there for Brix Piperzol since uh, it's got FDA approval. So I would probably imagine that if this were to be redone, it'd be in first line as well. Exactly. Uh, and uh, some of the second line here, bupropion, uh, lithium, buspirone, mirtazapine, et cetera. Um, uh, there's been a lot of growth in our knowledge around the use of the atypicals as adjuncts in major depressants, or not from the FDA submissions only, but there's also been some uh, some government-funded studies that point to the utility of the atypicals versus other augmentation and switch strategies. Um, so, of course, I'm referring to uh, the VASD study, which was mm -hmm. uh, completed yeah. and published a while back. So um, I don't know if you'd like to walk our audience through a little bit of what VASD involved and what the results were. Yeah, uh, certainly. It, it, it was a VA uh, study, a veterans, uh, you know, study. And they really looked over, you know, six to eight, you know, patients with uh, inadequate response for six to eight weeks. And it was, you know, either switch to bupropion, augment with bupropion, or augment with aripiprazole. And a large size study, you know, 500 uh, patients or so in each arm. Uh, and they were really looking for a quids, uh, score of less than five on two consecutive visits. For those of us in primary care, that'd be pretty analogous to a PHQ-9 right. uh, of less than five. And, uh, and then they were looking at secondary uh, outcomes as well in terms of improvement and, and so forth. So uh, that was critical. And then looking at relapse over, you know, over 36 weeks, you know, a very healthy uh, period of time as well as adverse events. So that's the setup of the study. Very important study. And here we have the results set up for our audience. So uh, bupropion monotherapy uh, proved to be kind of the least useful of the, uh, of, of the intervention. So switching to bupropion, 22% remission rate. Uh, the big winner was adding aripiprazole to an antidepressant produced the highest remission rate, statistically significant higher than bupropion monotherapy. Um, so comparing 28 versus 22 for remission and 74 versus 62% for response, would you say that these, these differences are clinically meaningful? Oh, no question. No question. And, uh, you know, I think not only are they, they uh, meaningful, but, but they're understandable given the uh, uh, breadth of, of action that you get with a second generation uh, agent. So that's critical. So here's some direct evidence uh, kind of uh, helping steer us away from, from switch tunnel vision, if you wish, exactly. uh, towards, uh, towards using some of these more elaborate augmentation strategies. Um, final, final comment I wanted to make is talking a little bit about side effects. Uh, 
Um, are there differences in side effects between these FDA-approved atypicals, and ha- how do you how do you rationalize them for patients? Sure, and you know, for any patient, it's the side effects they get. So certainly, I have a, a list of the ones that if I've got a patient on an atypical that I'm going to follow up on. Weight obviously is a biggie, and it, it can occur with any of them. It's much less frequent with uh, erbiprazole and uh, uh, result than um, you know than uh, OFC and, and the catiapine uh, you know agents, uh, but uh, but it occurs. Yeah, and so that's one I'm going to follow. Uh, Akesthesia is a you know, a problem that really emerges, I find, with time uh, with my aeropiprazole. Uh, right. uh, and, it, and it may be not full-blown. It may just be restlessness, but it may be a restlessness that's interfering with their work. Yeah, and that's a, a, a critical concern. So, so those are, are certainly two biggies that I, that I worry about. So let's quickly summarize the, the, the information that we've gone through, the points that we made today. Uh, we all know that many patients with major depressive disorder do not achieve complete remission with first-line treatment or even resolution of, of residual symptoms. Sleep disturbance, appetite, weight disturbance are very common residual symptoms uh, that, that need to be carefully addressed in order to help maintain the remission, maintain wellness, and maintain and, and uh, you know enhance uh, functional um, functional recovery. A lot of the next step treatments that we discussed involve switching to an antidepressant. Uh, combining multiple antidepressants with different mechanisms of action, or adding an adjunctive treatment. And uh, of those, the second-generation antipsychotics are by far the best studied in the field of major depressive disorder, and, and, and that group also comprises the only FDA-approved uh, treatments uh, for this indication. Uh, there are key differences in the side effects of these second-generation agents that we, that we discussed, Sedation, akathisia, weight gain are the ones that are more prominent, uh, and the chances of, of those occurring with the different atypicals and the chances of those side effects resulting in treatment discontinuation uh, vary be- between these, these approaches. Larry, thank you very much for, for joining me today in this uh, educational uh, activity. Thanks. And, and thank you all for, for your participation. You've been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is jointly provided by Novus Medical Education and Medical Education Resources and is supported by an independent educational grant from Atsuka America Pharmaceutical Incorporated. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com CME. Thank you for listening.